Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganari and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Kingdom for a Horse, India in the Vedic Period. When you consider that they can't talk, animals have played a surprisingly prominent role in the history of philosophy. The cynics were named after dogs, the medievals wondered what a donkey would do if faced with two equally appealing bales of hay, and in more recent times, giraffes have appeared prominently in a series of podcasts on the history of philosophy. As we turn to India, you may now be expecting a mention of cows, sacred or otherwise. But it turns out that the animal with the strongest claim for spurring on Indian philosophy is the horse. It is not indigenous to the subcontinent, but migrated into India along with a people who called themselves the Aryans. With the Aryans and their horses came the Indo-European language that would develop into Sanskrit, as well as the religious beliefs that would make their way into the ancient scriptures to which so much of Indian philosophy responds, the Vedas. The Aryans were not the first people to live in India. There is extensive archaeological evidence of earlier civilizations, who established cities in the Indus Valley as early as the 3rd millennium BC. Which raises the question of where exactly the Indus Valley is. Well, you can imagine the subcontinent as a diamond, which is blunt and broad at the northern end, tapering to a point at the southern end where it juts into the Indian Ocean. At the northern join between the subcontinent and the rest of Asia, the terrain is mountainous. Actually, that's putting it mildly, since we're talking here about the Himalayas and the Hindu Kush. And from these higher elevations, waters flow down into a plain dominated by two rivers, the Indus in the northeast and the Ganges at more or less due north. Further ranges of mountains divide this Indo-Gangetic plain from a large plateau in the center of India. This plateau is the Deccan. Though it forms the northern part of the actual peninsula, the word Deccan actually comes from the word for south, since it lies to the south of the Indo-Gangetic region. Much of our story is going to play out in the northern plain and in the Deccan, though we'll need to consider a wider range of locales and cultures to understand the full history of Indian philosophy. But it is along the Indus River that our story, or rather backstory, begins. This was the site of the Harappa and Mohenjo-Daro civilizations which existed before the coming of the Aryans. These were not primitive societies. They had well-laid-out cities, and the Harappans traded with people as far away as Mesopotamia. Though some of their writing has survived, it unfortunately has not been possible to decipher the Harappan script. In fact, we don't even know to which language group it belonged, possibly Dravidian, a group which includes Tamil and some other languages. Certainly, there were numerous languages spoken in the subcontinent prior to the coming of the Aryans, and influence from these languages can be detected in the Sanskrit of the Vedic literature. The story of the Aryans' arrival to India has provoked a good deal of speculation, indeed wild speculation, indeed ideologically inspired fantasy dressed up as sober scholarship. It used to be thought that the Aryans swept into the region as conquerors, unstoppable on their horse-drawn chariots, only to be slowly corrupted by the inferior races of India as they mingled with them over the generations. Now, scholars not only reject such racist descriptions of the process, but also lean towards thinking that the Aryans gradually migrated into India rather than overwhelming the region militarily. But they really did have horse-drawn chariots. Archaeologists report that the seals left behind by the Harappans feature various animals, 
including even the hippopotamus, which of course means river horse, but we never find actual horses on them. This makes for a striking contrast to the revelatory texts that preserve the Aryans' religious traditions, the Vedas. They mention horses with great regularity, and even put them at the center of one of the most important rituals. In the famous horse sacrifice, a stallion would be allowed to roam free for a year before being killed and dismembered the parts offered up to the gods. This was a ritual that could only be carried out by a king with the assistance of priests, who were not just skilled intermediaries to the gods, but also handy with a knife. The oldest of the Vedas is the Rig Veda, dating from around 1200 BC, and it contains a description of the horse sacrifice, which includes instructions aimed at the priest. The axe cuts through the 34 ribs of the racehorse, who is the companion of the gods. Keep the limbs undamaged and place them in the proper pattern, cut them apart, calling out piece by piece. While the horse sacrifice was a particularly elaborate and exalted ceremony, it nonetheless captures the social dynamic of Vedic religious practice fairly well. Animals, dairy products, and most famously a hallucinogenic plant called soma were sacrificed by being offered into flames. The sacrifices were a collaboration between the two elite classes of society, the priests or brahmins and the aristocratic warriors, or kshatriya. The caste system was completed by two more groups, the tradesmen and farmers of the commoner or vaishya class, and finally the serfs or laborers, known as the shudra. This last group was entirely excluded from the Vedic rituals and would have had its own separate religious practices. The Rig Veda refers to the four classes and even explains them through a kind of cosmology, which centers on the word purusha. This can mean the self, but the Rig Veda here characterizes it as all that hath yet been and all that is yet to be. The gods are said to have sacrificed purusha, dividing it just as the priests would cut up an animal. From purusha were extracted various species of animals, including goats, cattle, and, yes, horses, as well as the four classes of humankind. When they divided Purusha, how many portions did they make? What do they call his mouth, his arms? What do they call his thighs and feet? The priest was his mouth, of both his arms was the warrior made. His thighs became the commoner, from his feet the laborer was produced. With all this talk of archaeology, migrations, economic stratification, religion, and horses, you may have the mounting feeling that you're listening to a history podcast instead of a history of philosophy podcast. But with this passage, we have arrived at central themes of Vedic thought, themes with far-reaching philosophical implications. The beginning of the passage equates Purusha with all things. The later texts known as the Upanishads will build on this and similar suggestions in the Vedas to argue that a knowledge of the self, Purusha or Atman, is tantamount to a knowledge of the whole world. But the Rig Veda isn't simply saying that there is an ultimate unity between the self and the universe. It suggests that reality can be divided into natural parts, much like a skillfully butchered sacrificial animal. In our passage, this becomes a kind of justification for the class system of Vedic society. Obviously, this looks to our eyes like a self-serving account, representing as it does the interests of the Brahman and Kshatriya classes, the very people who carried out and benefited from the sacrifices described in Vedic literature. But there's more here than the cynical rationalization of an elitist culture. Again and again, 
the Vedas and Upanishads draw systematic parallels between the parts of human or animal bodies and the parts of the universe. At the risk of beating a dead horse, let's consider another example featuring the Aryan's favorite animal. The very beginning of the Brihadaranyaka, or Great Forest Upanishad, consists of an extended analogy or even identification between the parts of a sacrificial horse and the parts of the cosmos. The head of the horse is the dawn, its body is the year, its back the sky, its feet the days and nights, its bones the stars, its flesh the clouds, and so on. The passage concludes, When it yawns, lightning flashes. When it shakes itself, it thunders. And when it urinates, it rains. Its neighing is speech itself. The Upanishads tell us that when we understand the parts and powers of horses and humans, we travel a path from microcosm to macrocosm. Studying the structure of animals and humans is a way, even the way, to uncover the hidden structure of all things. The priest himself is a paradigm case. We read somewhat later in the first section of the Great Forest Upanishad that he is Brahman personified, a whole world in himself. This holistic philosophical understanding was the stock and trade of the Brahman class. It was they, and only they, who had expertise in the fine points of ritual and insight into the nature of the gods, which is why their assistance was needed by the warrior aristocrats of the Kshatriya class. Thanks to the rituals carried out by the Brahmins, the Kshatriya could hope for divine favor, which might bring insurance against calamity, large and healthy families, and ever-increasing wealth. More ambitiously, they could turn to the Brahmins for an explanation of the origin of all things, as suggested in the verse of the Rig Veda, As one all-ignorant for the sake of knowledge, I ask, unknowing, those who know, the sages, what was that one who established and fixed firm these world's six regions? And what did the know-it-all Brahmins get out of the deal? It's here that the cows come in. Many times in the Upanishads, a sage is promised head of cattle in return for their wisdom. This can even be the occasion for gentle comedy. A philosopher comes to court and the king asks him whether he is after cows or subtle disquisitions. Both, your majesty, replies the philosopher. The Upanishads show that within the symbiotic relationship of aristocrat and priest, the knowledge claims of the Brahmins did not go unchallenged. Another remarkable passage of the Great Forest Upanishad describes a dialogue between a king named Ajashatru and a priest named Dripta Balaki. The priest offers to give an account of Brahman or fundamental reality. Naturally, he's offered a thousand cows if his statement is deemed convincing. The priest begins by suggesting that Brahman resides in the sun, a proposal instantly rejected by the king. The sun may be the greatest of all beings, but it is not to be identified with Brahman itself. A long chain of further ideas follow. Brahman is in the moon, in space itself, in wind, water, sound, or body. The king slaps down every suggestion, using almost the same words each time. Finally, Dripta Balaki admits defeat, and asks to learn from the king instead of the other way around. The king agrees to enlighten them, even though it is, as he says, a reversal of the norm for a Brahmin to become the pupil of a Kshatriya. If this seems a rather heavy-handed way of hinting that the Brahmins might have something to learn from the Kshatriyas, it was as nothing compared to the challenges that emerged around the 5th century BC. This was the age of the Buddha and of Mahavira. The tradition of thought he founded, Jainism, takes its name from Mahavira's epithet Jina, meaning conqueror. 
It's significant that both Buddha and Mahavira came from among the Kshatriya aristocracy rather than the priestly Brahmin class. Both abandoned their wealth to lead lives of ascetic restraint, already an implicit criticism of the literal and spiritual economy that lay at the heart of the Brahminical tradition. Sometimes the criticism was more explicit. Buddhists and Jainas increasingly raised doubts about the efficacy of Vedic rituals, and the very possibility of attaining the kind of understanding claimed by the Brahmins. It's no wonder that Indian philosophy early on developed an obsession with the methods that might lead to knowledge, since knowledge was the commodity that earned the Brahmins their very livelihood. In these debates, an elite way of life, and not just epistemology, was at stake. But Buddhism and Jainism offered something more than mere criticism of the Brahmanical system of thought. Indeed, they promised their followers something that could not be achieved through any ritual, liberation. The classic texts of Brahmanical culture already allude to one of the beliefs we associate most readily with the Indian tradition, the cycle of reincarnation. In an oft-quoted passage of the Bhagavad Gita, we read, As a man casts off his worn-out clothes and takes on new ones, so does the self cast off its worn-out bodies and enter new ones. Rather than being relieved at the prospect of returning again and again to bodily existence instead of dying outright, Indian thinkers often set as their goal a liberation or escape from the relentless cycle. Consistently with the exaltation of knowledge, so typical of Vedic literature, one of the later Upanishads states, When a man has understanding, is mindful and always pure, he reaches that final step from which he is not reborn again. The Buddhists and Jainas duly offered their own versions of liberation, with the Buddhists subjecting to a radical critique the very idea of a self or soul that could pass from one body to another. From what's been said so far, you may have the impression that these dissenting schools were insurgents against the elite, a kind of living rebuke to the religious beliefs and power structures of ancient India. But, of course, Buddhism would itself develop into a major world religion, and this process already began in antiquity. The Buddhists may have been dismissive of the rituals outlined in the Vedas, but they had their own alternate forms of religious observance. For instance, different burial practices than those used in the Vedic tradition. As for the socio-economic position of the Buddhists and Jainas, it did not take long for the elites to adopt, if not co-opt, the new teachings. We see this with the rulers of the powerful Mauryan Empire, which held much of the territory of the subcontinent in the period around the 3rd century BC. It was founded in 321 BC by Chandragupta Maurya, who expanded his initial territory in part by taking advantage of the power vacuum that resulted when the conquering armies of Alexander the Great pulled out of northwestern India. King Chandragupta had a Brahmin advisor named Kautilya, who was said to be the author of a political treatise called the Artha Shastra, We'll be considering it in a future episode. With this dynasty, we see that the dissenters' ideas too could appeal to the ruling class that had sought wisdom from the Brahmins for so many generations. It is said that Chandragupta himself abdicated his kingship after becoming an adherent of Jainism. We have much more evidence concerning the intellectual allegiance of Chandragupta's grandson, Ashoka. Appalled by the violence he had witnessed in a military campaign against the region of Kalinga, Ashoka sought to wield his royal power in a fashion consistent with Buddhist teachings. His armies would not make war, except in self-defense, and as ruler he would look to the welfare of all his subjects. Ashoka had inscriptions erected around his empire in a variety of languages. 
His edicts were even translated into Greek and Aramaic for the northwestern regions. This is just one example of the interpenetration of Greek and Indian culture in the generations following Alexander's conquests. During the Hellenistic period, the Bactrian ruler Demetrius extended his rule into the Punjab and Indus Valley. Tradition records that another Greek king, Menander, converted to Buddhism. A supposed dialogue between this king and a Buddhist teacher named Nagasena survives as the so-called Questions of Menander. Again, we'll return to this text in a future episode. But before getting into the Buddhist and Jaina traditions and their critique of Brahmanical culture, we need first to understand better what they were criticizing. This means first and foremost understanding the Upanishads, works that set out to expound the meaning of the Vedic texts and the rituals they described. Devised over the course of many generations, they are monuments of world literature and foundational texts of the Hindu religion. And of course, they are full of philosophical material, which is sometimes suggestive and metaphorical, sometimes frankly argumentative and disputatious. So we assume that even wild horses couldn't drag you away from listening to the next installment in which we'll begin to tackle the Upanishads here on The History of Philosophy in India.